Luke chapter 21. It's a long one. I'm going to read verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Luke 21 verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, 
But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, we come to one of the most hotly debated subjects in all of Scripture. In fact, this account, which is called the Olivet Discourse, is found in three of the four Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And this is probably the most disagreed upon passage in the Bible. Many great scholars throughout church history have studied this subject and come up with very divergent ideas on how we are to understand it. Great men of the faith whose names we all know, many of whom whose books we have read, who agree in most everything else that we hold dear, tend to disagree when it comes to this chapter. The subject is the end of the world, and the theological term for that is eschatology. Eschatology literally means the study of final things. The return of Christ, the resurrection, the final judgment, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. And these are all areas where people have very different views on how these things will unfold. And what I thought I would do as we're introduced to this chapter is sort of give you a very large overview of the whole chapter and put some necessary principles into place for us so that we can uh, best approach it. I want to pull back and look at the big picture before we do any kind of deeper dive into any particulars in the coming weeks. And I thought it would help to talk about why this chapter is very misunderstood by some. And so these are going to be principles, I think, that will help us sort of become more familiar with what we have here in this chapter. So, there's four things I want us to keep in mind as we read Luke 21. This is what you need to know as we embark on a study of this chapter. Number one, it's a, it's a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Okay, before we look at any text, before we look at this as a window into the, the, the end of the world, we have to look at the historical context. So if you look at verse, starting in verse 5, notice... It says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So there is a rule of biblical interpretation that states that to understand a text, you always need to take into account what it meant to the author of that text and what it meant to the audience receiving that text. So before we read anything through our 21st century lens, which we have a tendency to do, we need to first ask, what did this mean to the writer and what did this mean to the hearer? How would someone hearing this for the first time understand it? So last week we saw Jesus and his disciples were in the temple and as they leave, the disciples are impressed with this magnificent structure. It's beauty and it's splendor and they point to Jesus and say, isn't this just the most wonderful thing you've ever seen? And Jesus says, it's all going to come down. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Surprisingly, the disciples do not object to this. They're not astonished by this, but instead they want to know the timing of it all. And so their response isn't, well, why? Why would that happen? Their response is, when's this going to happen? 
And the remainder of the chapter is Jesus describing the events that are going to lead up to the destruction of the temple and its completion. And if you don't start here with the original historical context, you're going to have a lot of misunderstandings later on down the road. You cannot read this chapter solely as an end-of-the-world prophecy. Oh yeah, I know Luke 21, it's about the end of the world. But you, you want to rightly divide it, so the first thing you do is say, okay, what is its historical context? What did it mean to those who first heard it? Jesus is answering specific questions regarding the temple. That much is absolutely plain. And what Jesus gives here is a description of how it's all going to go down. And we can look back in history and say, we know when this happened. This happened in A.D. 70. I'm saying A.D. 70, not 1870. Someone asked me after the service last time I mentioned A.D. 70, thinking I said 1870. For some reason, uh, B.C. goes after the number and A.D. goes before it. I don't know why. It's a Latin thing. A.D. 70. So when you read through this, you have to remember, first and foremost, this is answering their question about an event that was to happen in their lifetime. And this is why when you read through the account, you can see Jesus is directing this to them. Verse 8, he says, See that you are not led astray. Who is the you? It's the disciples. Jesus is probably looking them in the eye as he's saying this to them. Do not be led astray. Those hearing this for the first time would not be thinking about some distant future. Or verse 12, Jesus says, but before all this, they will, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Who is the you? He's speaking to the early disciples. And we see this happen in the book of Acts, do we not? Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, there are certain points of this entire discourse that would not make sense unless it's talking about 70 A.D., A.D. 70. For example, I will pull one out of Matthew's account. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a destruction of a temple in Jerusalem, and it's going to be catastrophic, and they should pray that this doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Why? Because these are a Sabbath-keeping people, and all the gas stations and mini-marts are closed on the Sabbath. So if you're trying to hightail it out of town, and everything is closed, that's going to make it a lot harder. Same if you have uh, children who are nursing, same if... uh, if um, it's the winter. So this is all relevant to the audience that Jesus is talking about. These are events that they need to be aware of. And all of it is relevant. The, 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 the false teachers, the wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, earthquakes and famines, persecution, etc. In fact, you may notice when Richard read Mark's account and I read Luke's account, Jesus makes this statement towards the end of this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What is the all? Well, everything he just described prior to this. This means for the first century hearer, everything that Jesus prophesied in that account was going to take place in their lifetime. Now, I've heard some people who do not keep the original audience in mind try to get clever with this because they're thinking it's only a future prophecy and they say, well, he doesn't mean this generation in his midst. He means this generation that's going to see these end time things unfold. In other words, he didn't say this generation. He said that generation. 
But Jesus did not say that generation. And if you were sitting there at his feet and he's teaching you about all these things and then he says to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled, you're not going to walk away thinking he's talking about thousands of years from now. No, you're going to say, wow, we're going to be alive to see these things. Jesus said it would all happen before they died, so it must mean that. I've read people try to change, twist, kind of come at it from a different angle because they have an end times perspective that does not fit with this statement. And I would rather Jesus just tell me what's the deal. I would rather him just tell me so I don't have to try to figure out ways to make it say something different. So first and foremost, to rightly interpret this chapter, you have to recognize that it's a prophecy about the temple's destruction. Secondly, to understand Luke 21, you have to recognize that the destruction of the temple is a type of the final judgment. It is a type of the final judgment. If Luke 21 was only about the destruction of the temple, there would be no interpretive challenges. We could all agree and be happy. But what becomes difficult is we recognize as we go through this chapter that some of the things Jesus describes must be end-of-time things. It sounds like he's talking about the end of the world and his second coming. And what we discover is that Jesus expands the scope of his answer to their question to include the end of time so that what he's describing in the destruction of the temple is a type or a shadow of the final judgment that's coming at the end of the world. In fact, if you read Matthew's account, there is more involved in the disciples' question than is recorded in Luke. Matthew 24.3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? <clears throat> now this looks like it could be three questions. I think it's two questions. They're asking, when will this happen? And what will be the signs accompanying it? I believe the and, when they say your coming and the end of the age, is a reference to the same event. So they ask, tell us, when will these things be? The destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, how will we know when this is all happening? It's almost the same as in Luke, but Luke does not have the end of the age part. Now the question is posed this way, I think, because the disciples hear that the temple is going to be destroyed, and if the temple is going to be destroyed, it must be the end of the age. In other words, they don't have in their mind that there is a future of God's redemptive plan apart from God's temple. So if Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, they're thinking, oh, that's when everything is going to be destroyed. You see? So they're not thinking temple destruction. Thousands of years later, Jesus returns in a judgment on the world. They're thinking the destruction of the temple must be the end. In the Jewish mind, God's temple would never be destroyed. Which, if you've read through the Old Testament, is funny because God's temple was already destroyed in 587. This was the second temple that you can read about uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. God releases the captives from Babylon and he tells them to go build a temple. And it's small and it's half as glorious as the first one. And yet Herod the Great comes along in the first century just prior to, and he decides he's going to really make this temple something magnificent, so he doubles the size of the whole uh, compound of the temple, and he really dazzles it up, and it's really something remarkable. 
And it's this glorious testimony of, the God, of their God in their presence. And Jesus says it's going to be leveled. And they're thinking, okay, well, if there's no temple, then where's God supposed to be? And this must be the end of the world also. So the Jews are thinking that the temple is immovable and it's indestructible. And that's why the only way they can conceive of this is that those are the same event. So they ask him, when will this happen? And what will be the sign? So Jesus answers their question about the temple, but as he's teaching on the temple's destruction, we also see echoes of the final judgment to come at the end of the age. Everyone who's read through, I won't say everyone, most people who read through this can recognize there are things about it that are describing the final judgment. So some people might think, why does Jesus describe it this way? I mean, why not teach about the destruction of the temple in one place, and why not teach about the end of the world in another place, so that you don't have all these confused Christians for centuries later on? Like, why did he intertwine these things, even though there's two events in here that are going to be separated by thousands of years? And the reason is, Jesus speaks in the role of a prophet. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And Old Testament prophets spoke with near and far fulfillments. So if you've read through the Old Testament, you will recognize that a prophet would speak about something in their day, and it would have a near application, but then it would have some future final application that was even greater than its initial prophecy. I'll give you an example, Old Testament example. Remember David. David wanted to build a, a house for God, and God came to him and said, I'm not going to let you build a house for God. You're a man of war. I'm going to let your son build me a house. So Nathan the prophet comes to David in 2 Samuel 7:12, and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And of course we know that just as Nathan prophesied, Solomon became this king who built the house of God. He was the one who built the temple. But we also know that this has a far prophecy because the real one who's building the temple for God is Jesus. Jesus is the son of David who's going to be the one who builds the temple. And so Nathan was talking temporally about Solomon building a temple in the Middle East, but his Long-term prophecy was about Jesus building his temple, which is the church. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. That is why there is no longer a need for us to go to a certain location in a certain building, because if you have been born of God's Spirit, then God lives within you, and we collectively become that temple. Peter says, we all, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So, this kind of prophetic near and far is called telescoping, and we see this kind of telescoping through many of the prophets. Now, why do they do it this way? Well, if a prophet was to make a prophecy from God that was not going to be fulfilled for thousands of years, how could anyone know that it was a true prophecy or that he was a true prophet? I could, you know, anyone could walk around and say, well, this is, God told me this is going to happen, but it's not going to happen until 2512. It's like, oh man, well, no one's going to be around for that. So, prophets would speak the truth of God in their day that would have a fulfillment in their day but it often expanded to have an even greater fulfillment much farther in the future. I'll give you another example. Isaiah 7, 
King Ahaz is being threatened by two other nations and he's afraid that they're going to come and destroy the nation. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, God said they're not going to destroy the nation. And he gives him a prophecy to give him confidence. Isaiah 7.14, you know this verse. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the sign would be that there would be a young girl, the the Hebrew could mean virgin or young girl, and this young girl was going to have a son, and his name was going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us, and when he came to a certain age, those nations were going to be no more. They were not going to be a threat to Israel anymore, and so Isaiah gives Ahaz this sign from God. But we know... That is not the fullness of that prophecy because 700 years later, this prophecy is applied to the birth of Jesus. So these things had a short-term and a long-term final fulfillment and that's the way the prophets did it. So when you read Luke 21, you're doing so with the understanding that this was fully true for the original audience in what they would experience And yet there was a final application of that prophecy, an expansion of that prophecy that would have an even greater meaning for the future. I chose the title slide of this with a pair of glasses that are bifocals. If you know what bifocals do, you see clearly close up with the lower part of the lens and you see clearly far away with the upper part of the lens. I am wearing bifocals. And that means I can see clearly close and I can see clearly far. And that's sort of how you have to think about these kinds of prophecies. They're like bifocal lenses. So we read Luke 21 with this in mind. We don't disregard the original intent of the passage, the near. And we don't only focus on the far. We hold them both in our vision so that they both remain clear to us. Many in the church have recognized that this is how you handle this. Charles Spurgeon, you know his name. He said, We must regard the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as being a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. Commentator Matthew Poole, Puritan, said, The signs of the same kind with those seen before Jerusalem was destroyed shall be seen before the great and terrible day of our Lord's coming to judge the world. So you've got those bifocals on as you read this chapter. You're seeing the near fulfillment in A.D. 70 and you're seeing the far fulfillment at the end of the world. So point number one, it's about the destruction of the temple. Point number two, it's a type of the final judgment. A third thing to keep in mind when interpreting this chapter is that Jesus uses apocalyptic language. Jesus uses apocalyptic language. One complicating factor when interpreting this chapter is that when Jesus speaks prophetically here in the style of the Old Testament prophet, he not only utilizes the near and far fulfillments, but he uses imagery that's very unfamiliar to us. So if you've ever read through the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, you find parts of those books are really hard to interpret. I mean, there's horns and dragons and all kinds of stuff, and you're like, what are, what are they talking about? And that is because this symbolism, the, these metaphors, this imagery that's being portrayed by these prophets is this kind of 
is a genre of literature called apocalyptic. You don't read it thinking these things are literal. You read it thinking these things are largely symbolic. Jesus does the same thing here in the Olivet Discourse. Now my first point was Jesus said all these things will happen before this generation passes away. Meaning, all of it was pertaining to the destruction of the temple and Jesus said they would all see that. But then you read things in the chapter and you think, well, how on earth could that be related to A.D. 70? And I will give you an example. This is apocalyptic language. Verse 25, Jesus said there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now this sounds really bad. This sounds cataclysmic, end of the world kind of stuff. And yet earlier I made the point that Jesus said all these things must take place before this generation passes away. How do you make sense of that? Well, you have to recognize what it means when Jesus is saying that the heavens will be shaken. What, what does that mean? It's apocalyptic language. Let me give you just one more example from Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, how could that be a reference to 70 AD? Well, we see this kind of language throughout the Old Testament prophets when they would prophesy about a temporal judgment in their day. For example, Isaiah 13. Isaiah is prophesying a judgment against Babylon. And notice what he says here. Isaiah 13.1, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. If you drop down to verse 9, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make, a, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. A couple of verses later, verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And if you continue reading Isaiah chapter 13, he goes on and says, I'm talking about, I'm going to use the Medes and I'm going to raise them up and they're going to destroy you and this is what it's going to look like. So go read the whole prophecy. It's fascinating. But this whole chapter is about Babylon being destroyed by God. But do you see some familiar language there? Heavens tremble, earth is shaken, I mean the sun doesn't shine and all the rest. What was the audience in Isaiah's day thinking was going to happen? Whoa, this destruction of Babylon is going to be a really big deal. Like God is talking about, we might say, earth shattering kind of stuff. It's going to be big. So, this is symbolic language that's meant to communicate a very cataclysmic destruction. We find something similar in Ezekiel 32, verse 1. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, this is a judgment against Egypt, the whole chapter, Drop down to verse 7, just for the sake of time. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven what will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. 
And so this type of language is common when you read through the prophets. It's a genre of literature called apocalyptic and it's meant to communicate these symbols and images of great terror and great wrath from God. And Jesus uses this kind of language in Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13 to describe the coming judgment against Jerusalem. Just like one of the Old Testament prophets. Now furthermore, back to our second point, while he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, we also see in this an end of time judgment where this is also being expanded to talk about the great and final judgment which all of these apocalyptic judgments are pointing to. In other words, in other words, Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon was about Babylon, but also a type of the end of the world judgment. Uh, Ezekiel's judgment against Pharaoh is also a type of the end of the world kind of judgment. They're microcosms, they're for that particular place and time, but they also echo through the millennia until the end when we see the final fulfillments when God pours out his wrath on the whole world. Now, I think Jesus' audience would have understood this a lot more than we do. Uh, Jesus was speaking in this way, and they are first century Jewish Bible readers, so they would know, hey, this sounds a lot like Isaiah and Ezekiel and so forth. So they're not stumbling over this you know, the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. They're like, yeah, that sounds a lot like what I read in Isaiah. But for us, the modern hearer, it complicates things because we uh, are not usually familiar with that kind of teaching. So here's what you need to know about this chapter. One, it's about the destruction of the temple. Two, the destruction of the temple is a type of the final judgment. Three, Jesus uses apocalyptic language in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets. And then four, Luke 21 and the others must be read apart from importing current events. Now, well-meaning people who come to prophetic passages tend to interpret those passages based on their experience in their day without considering other factors. Not only do people tend to ignore what the prophecy meant to the original hearer, but they will look at their place in history and make associations that confuse their ability to interpret things soberly. There are some who read the Bible next to the newspaper and they develop a distorted view of Scripture because they are making incorrect associations and assumptions about what is found in the text. And many, sadly, broadcast these ideas and make predictions about things that not only discredit themselves, but they bring reproach on the name of Christ. We've all heard about end-time predictions and claims that Christ is returning at this time or at this date because this or that text demands it only for them to be wrong time and time again. And so my warning here is that we need to be careful to not limit Scripture only to what we see happening in our day and associate what's happening here in the news with that symbol there in the text and think it can only mean that. It couldn't mean anything else. And I might preach a standalone message on this. We'll see. But just let me give you an idea, real clear idea of what I mean. For many centuries uh, during the Protestant Reformation and beyond, Christians believed the beast in the book of Revelation was the Roman Catholic Church. And the little horn prophecy from the book of Daniel chapter 7, also the Antichrist is, was the Pope. Okay, So the papacy is that little horn, that Antichrist, and the beast of Revelation is the Catholic Church. This was the belief of Martin Luther, 
John Calvin, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Knox, and even later, John Wesley. Let me give you a few quotes. This is from a Lutheran commentary that says, Luther proved by the revelations of Daniel and St. John, by the epistles of St. Paul, St. Peter, and St. Jude, that the reign of Antichrist predicted and described in the Bible was the papacy. John Calvin said in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, I shall briefly show that Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2 are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies them to the papacy. Not capable of any other interpretation. There's no need for discussion. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher, writer, he said in the 1800s, Now we know quite well that the beast is the church of Rome. We are told that the beast sits upon seven hills. And we are told at the end of the second verse that the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, McShane was just standing upon the shoulders of those who have gone before him because many of the reformers thought, well, of course, of course. I mean, you know, you've got this oppressive system in the 1600s that persecuted people who had Bibles and who uh, were, 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 were charging people indulgences and selling salvation to them. And they were... Uh, keeping people from translating the Bible into their own language, owning the the Bible in their own language. And so, of course, this must be the beast of Revelation who makes war with the saints. This was so widespread and assumed by so many that it's in the confession that we as a church hold to, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Listen to this. It reads, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, and order or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming." So, what were they doing? Well, they saw that the biggest threat to the gospel in their day was the Roman Catholic Church because they were persecuting Christians who taught what the Bible said and they were executing them and putting them to death and burning them at the stake and destroying the scriptures that the people had in their own language and they read the Bible and they read the newspaper and they said, of course, this is what it's talking about. But I don't know a ton of Christians today who associate the Beast of Revelation with the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because we do not see the Roman Catholic Church as the greatest threat to the gospel in our day. Some might maybe see it as secularism. Some might see it as Islam. I mean, you could probably fill in that blank with lots of other things. But in their day, that's what it was, and there was no room for interpretation otherwise. Now, what complicates the interpretation of Luke 21, as we come to it, is that we have a tendency to look around in our day and make associations and become firmly convinced the Scripture teaches this and nothing else. And I want to just warn us to not fall into that trap. Let me give you an example. I'll give you several examples. The mark of the beast. For many centuries, the mark of the beast, it was taught that it was going to be a tattoo. So the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, there's a mark on the hand, on the forehead, and if you have those marks, you cannot buy or sell. That's the mark of the beast. So for many centuries, people said, well, it must be a tattoo. And then in the 1970s, when barcodes came along, they said, ah, here it is. It's barcodes. Barcodes are going to be the mark of the beast. And in our day, it's going to be a computer chip that's planted under the skin. And a hundred years from now, if the Lord does not return, I guarantee you it's probably going to be something else. Now, maybe it's that. 
Or maybe it's not that at all. But we don't want to lock down on something that no one else in the history of the world could have foreseen or known or, or we could not see beyond that because it seems so plain to us. Another one I hear Christians teach that the locusts in the book of Revelation are Apache helicopters and John the Apostle did not know how to describe what he was seeing. They were helicopters and so he described them as locusts. And I know Christians who think there's no other way to read that. Or, when the European Union began to form, and it, guess what? It formed as ten nations. And in Daniel's prophecy, there's, there's going to be this joining of ten kings that come together. And there were books that came out in the 70s and 80s saying that the, this European Union is going to be this, this uh, one world government. And then Greece was added to the Union, and then there was 11, and that messed everything up. And you go on and different nations are added. And today there's 27 nations and I don't hear people writing books anymore about the European Union being um, the prophecy of Daniel. So I just, I'm just sharing this that, that we be cautious and we be sober-minded when we come to the text and be very open to being uh, willing to what it might or might not say. We have to hold these things loosely, lots of grace, because they are not often easy to interpret. In fact, there are only two things we can be 100% certain about when it comes to prophecy. Two things where we can have 100% certainty. And that is when something is prophesied in the Bible and has already come to pass. For example, the prophecies about Jesus... We see their fulfillment in the Bible, and we can look at those prophecies and say, I know with 100% certainty that was a prophecy about Jesus because we see it come to pass. And the second thing that we can have 100% certainty about is when a prophecy is given in Scripture and then its interpretation is given. So in Revelation, Jesus tells us the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Or in the book of Daniel, it says these four great beasts that he sees in his vision are four kings. So other than that, we cannot have 100% certainty. We can have certainty on these things, but when it comes to the rest of prophecy, we want to be very uh, careful as not to lock down on things that future generation of the church is going to look back and probably laugh at. And this takes us away from the main point of prophecy to begin with. This is my closing here. What is the main point of all of this? Why did Jesus give us end times prophecy? Well, I'll let Jesus explain it himself because he says so at the end of this passage in Luke. He says, 21-34, But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus gives the long prophecy and then he tells us the purpose of it. It's not so that you can write a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988, like the guy did. It's not so we can have tons and tons of speculation that our whole lives are just stacking up speculations about what this or that means. But it's about you. In, in other words, the prophecy is given so that you are sober and awake and say, the Lord could come back, I better be living the right way. That's what he says. Stay awake at all times. Why? Keep an eye on yourself. Watch over your own heart. Be careful that you're not caught up in this world that's passing away and you're so going along with the world that Jesus is going to surprise you and you're going to be shocked at His coming. 
Or 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's another reason for the prophecy. He says, but you are not in darkness, Christians, brothers, for that day, talking about the end, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, here's the application, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I mean, there's nothing more sobering than thinking, I could be standing before Jesus today. I mean, that's going to that's gonna cause you to regularly be examining your heart and make sure you're in the right place. He's speaking here spiritually. Don't be asleep. Don't be spiritually asleep. Don't be so swept up in the things of this world that you're just completely out of touch with the Spirit of God. Last one, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, God is telling us how these things are going to come to an end, not so we get so wrapped up in, in, in speculation, but so that we get so wrapped up in living rightly before God that when that day comes, we're going to be excited about it and not shrink away in fear. It's about holiness. It's about godliness. And so God gives us these things to cause us to persevere in faith. Well, we're going to see much more from this chapter Um, in the coming weeks, and let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do not want to be as those who are caught up and taken by surprise and uh, ashamed on that day because we were not living for You. We want to be awake. We want to be sober. We want to be watchful. And that watchfulness, Lord, more than anything, is over our own hearts. So please help us, Father, that we would be careful to live in a right manner before you, always aware that your coming could be at any time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.